Well, it may come as no surprise that the healthcare system in this country as we know it is in crisis. That may sound dramatic, but the head of the Canadian Medical Association warns the strain put on the system throughout the pandemic, as we've been documenting and talking about now for ages, shows no signs of lessening. If anything, it's getting worse. And our politicians, she says, don't seem to be showing the kind of will needed to turn it around. Joining me now is Dr. Catherine Smart, president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Smart, thanks so much for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. It was interesting because you're right, we've been talking a lot about weights at airports, but uh, you mentioned in an interview last week that if anything, if you've been waiting for a hip replacement, then it's nothing. Um, we're, we're in real trouble here, it seems, and, and you're speaking out about it, and that's not what you always do. No, we are in real trouble, and, and I think, you know, it's not to say that people waiting in airports should have to do that either, and I certainly never want to minimize people's experiences, but, but I think what really struck me about that was just the attention that got, you know, um, tons of media coverage, lots of Canadians speaking up, you know, several ministers declaring an emergency, and, and I kept, couldn't help but think to myself, well, what about all these Canadians who are waiting for really serious things and suffering, not for days, not for hours, but sometimes for years? And right now, that's the situation we're in. I'm, I'm really concerned about the quality of care that people are receiving, the wait times, um, how care is being delivered, and, and really importantly, just the degree of burnout and, and moral distress this is causing in my colleagues and other healthcare professionals who are really deeply worried about their ability to continue to do their jobs to a standard uh, that they think is what Canadians deserve. Yeah, I was reading an op-ed, I think, at the Toronto Star recently, where one former medical professional uh, now asks her physicians how they are doing. Uh, That's right. Which just says it all, doesn't it? No, it really does. And that was Dr. Jillian Horton who published that today and was just reflecting on on how that's changed and, and just how low the morale is and how burnout is really a result of working in a broken system. And, and I think that's important. And, you know, we know that burnout matters because it's also really important in safety and quality of care. And when the people in the workforce aren't doing well, uh, the care that people receive from them suffers. So that's why it, it should really be top of mind for people. Uh, we need a healthy workforce to deliver excellent care to our patients. So, Dr. Smart, if you were to explain to listeners just what happened, because I think we were all paying rapt attention to the healthcare system right through those early days, uh, even the first you know, 18 months of COVID, and then it just seemed to, to wane a little bit. Um, what's happened? Because it's certainly the pressure on our healthcare professionals has not changed. If anything, as you said, uh, it's gotten worse because I gather the backup is coming in now. That's right. I think, you know, I think a few things have happened. I think anytime there's a crisis like COVID, I mean, it's been going on for a long time and, and healthcare has been very prominent in the media. People have been talking about it a lot. I think naturally people start fatigue when they're hearing the same thing over and over again. And, and I worry that we get kind of complacent and just sort of accept it. I think because we've been talking about, you know, issues in healthcare even before the pandemic for a long time, it can have that same impact where it almost just becomes a oh yeah, we know there's problems there, but unless you're kind of the person sitting in the chair with your broken leg for three days waiting for your surgery, it's maybe not top of mind day to day. And then I think other things are, are happening in the world as well that have you know very appropriately taken our attention. And there's other things then that have been dominating in the media space, and there's just been less attention on the, the issues in healthcare. And I think, you know, when the pandemic was really at its peak, we were seeing more dramatic healthcare stories, you know, intensive care units overwhelmed questions of whether care would have to be triaged to people, life and death type things. Now what we're seeing is more of that slow burn that, and it, it's impacting 
impacting across the system, you know, lack of access to family medicine, growing surgical backlogs, emergency departments that are overcrowded. And people have heard about these things before, but I think what's different right now is really the scope and the depth of it. So this is a problem that's happening across the country. It's not just, you know, one town or one province. Um, We're really seeing that impact dramatically. And we're starting to see things we haven't seen before in the system. You know, emergency departments actually closing in some smaller centers some of our larger centers even being on diversion because certain staff aren't available. Like, for example, recently in Calgary, the Rocky View Hospital was diverting surgical patients because they didn't have a surgeon. I mean, this is a major hospital in a major city. This is not a small town. So th- this t- type of thing is, is really very different. And I'm seeing daily from colleagues just stories that are unbelievable. You know, someone with a broken femur sitting in a chair for three days waiting for surgery. I mean, I really worry about how we're preserving the dignity of our patients and our our ability to really provide people with care that's reasonable. And I don't think anyone would think those types of things are reasonable. No, no. I mean, we take such pride in our public health care system, but clearly not if it's collapsing like this. I mean, just how much has it changed and what's happening since you know, the strain of the early days of the pandemic has started to lessen a little bit. And where are we seeing it? Uh, I think you mentioned at one point that kids are are amongst those waiting the longest for treatment these days. Yeah, that's right. In Ontario, children actually have the longest wait times of anyone across the board. So that's for diagnostic imaging, surgery, to see a mental health professional. All those wait times are actually have grown longer than adults, which I, I, I think is quite probably surprising for people. And lately in children's hospitals, the wait times in emergency departments have also been longer than in adult hospitals. And that's for a multitude of reasons, primarily that right now as you know, the pandemic restrictions are lifting, we're also seeing a lot more viruses circulating. So we have an an unusual number of children having viral illness for the time of year. Usually once we head into these warmer months, those things are less common. But right now it's more like winter months and we're seeing sort of surge levels of visits to emergency departments and then of course those backlogs and I think that's what we're starting to see in terms of the pressure across the system is people that didn't receive care during the pandemic uh, are presenting where so people are coming in with sicker more serious illness sometimes things that haven't been picked up or diagnosed that would have been sooner and people that have been waiting for surgery of course many of those people their conditions declining while they're waiting so they may be coming in with pain that's unmanageable or complications from their medical problem that led to them needing surgery. So I think we're seeing a lot of those things kind of coming into our emergency departments and that's creating more people in the hospital and that's putting pressures on the inpatient beds, which then of course also cause that emergency department overwhelm. And then on either side of that, we are really struggling in the community as well. So, you know, in terms of where patients move to once they're done their time in the hospital, that's an ongoing issue. We have many people in our hospitals that are what we call alternative level of care patients usually elderly patients who could be cared for in the community, but there's no spot for them either in long-term care or there's not adequate home care resources to allow them to move out of the hospital so they're occupying a bed. And that's a huge uh, issue that we have across the country, but it's been particularly in terms of blocking those beds and not having space then for new people coming in with acute problems. And side of it, sort of in the community, we have this real issue with access to primary care and family medicine, which means some people are not having their chronic illnesses managed optimally, and that, again, can lead to people to deteriorate and need acute care. So, you know, the, the 
it's a system. It's like an organism and all these pieces impact each other. So what's kind of happening right now is there's really no aspect of our system that's doing well. And all those cumulative pressures are, are really showing up with a huge system under strain. And then, of course, on top of that, we have really dramatic burnout in our staff. So, you know, for physicians, the level of burnout has essentially doubled during the pandemic. It's very similar for nurses. We're starting to see people walking away from healthcare. There's been a lot of loss of nursing staff over the course of the pandemic. And now as well. Um, and that means people that are showing up at work are showing up to environments that are short-staffed. And that, again, just leads to the pressure and, and the burnout making it even worse. So it's sort of this cyclical problem um, that we really need to be thinking about because it is impacting access and quality of care that people are receiving. It feels like the whole system needs about a month just to stop and reset, but you'll never get that chance to catch up. Uh, I know that, Dr. Smart, you have been speaking with uh, federal politicians of late, uh, with the minister trying to find or at least suggesting that the federal government needs to get more involved in this. uh, And we'll talk about that after. Dr. Catherine Smart is with us this half hour. She is the president of the Canadian Medical Association. We've been talking about just how much strain the entire medical system is, the healthcare system in this country is this day, these days, from come by chance to Kamloops, I understand. Um, and just what can be done about it? Because uh, clearly uh, something needs to be done um, with the situation as it is now. Uh, I understand, Dr. Smart, that you spoke with, uh, with the health minister this week. And you're really looking, I mean, I know this is provincial jurisdiction, but you are looking for the feds to do a little bit more what would that look like we are asking the federal government to do more and and i think you know we've, we've sort of been all been told it's it's a provincial jurisdiction but there is actually grounds for it to be a shared responsibility and a shared jurisdiction and that's really what we're trying to advance with the federal government i think it, it's quite clear that the, the degree of, of challenge within our healthcare system is is going to be challenging to solve uh, in 13 separate silos with everyone sort of doing their own thing. And, and I think, you know, that's best evidenced by the fact that it hasn't been solved yet. So we probably need to start thinking a little bit differently about how we're going to do things if we want to get a different outcome. Um, so we did have the opportunity to meet with Minister Duclos. You know, we've all uh, recently heard about some of the priorities the federal government's advancing around health, and we had a chance to have more of a conversation about that. I think uh, he and his team recognize that there's a need to, to build a collaborative relationship with the provinces around health and the territories. And, and I think that they're getting some, some receptiveness uh, to that as well. I think everyone's realizing that just this has really ballooned into something that's quite both scary and overwhelming. And there's an opportunity for us to share solutions and ideas and, and start moving in the same direction because a lot of the big challenges are similar around the, the country. It's not that, you know, provinces are experiencing really dramatically different things. So I think there is a chance to, to take that approach. And, and what we would really like to see is the federal government providing some leadership, particularly around some of the key challenges that really do have a national solution. And so those are things like Canadian, pardon me, creating a pan-Canadian workforce plan as an example. You know, right now, we don't collect any data about the healthcare professionals that we have, where they are, where they work planning down for projections down the road about how many people we're going to need and then linking those back to our educational institutions to make sure we have the right number of people in training. So there's a real opportunity there for federal leadership that could help prevent us from getting into a health workforce crisis like this down the road. There's other strategies like a pan-Canadian license for physicians and nurses 
that would allow more health workforce mobility. And that's really important right now in some of our rural areas where there's really immense stress and often small numbers of providers. And it can be very challenging for physicians in those communities to get anyone to come to help them to have a break or a holiday. And that then, of course, in turn makes retention to those communities very difficult when new physicians think, well, do I want to move somewhere if I'm never going to be able to take a day off work? Um, So improving that workforce mobility so that people in bigger centers can go and help out easily makes a big difference. Um, And also as we're looking at how virtual care can be leveraged to improve access to care, again, a a national license makes a lot more sense as then we'd be able to provide care across borders and improve access uh, for Canadians. So that's another place for federal leadership. And I think the third place is, is, you know, there's many things, but sort of talking about some of the top priorities uh, is around primary care. You know, it's very clear uh, that we have a, a system for primary care family medicine in Canada that was really designed in the 60s for, for what the patients were like in those days and what the population's needs were. And they're really not reflective of the health challenges that are presenting it currently in our system. And it's become very challenging for family doctors to do the work that they want to do. And, and it's they've made it very clear that a lot of the structures that they're working in are so antiquated, they're not able to retain or attract newer family doctors. And, you know, a great example is some data that came just out of BC a couple of weeks ago that showed of their 6,000 family doctors, only half of them are actually working in longitudinal family medicine. So this is a, a real signal that we need to reimagine that space. And I think this is another example where the federal government can provide some leadership. We do have some solutions things like integrated team-based care, different payment models for physicians. And there's, this has been tried in some provinces um, like Alberta and Ontario with success. So again, it's a chance for other provinces to, to learn from that. And I think for the federal government to direct resources uh, to, to motivate provinces to, to implement some of these changes. So I'm optimistic if we can get people to the table and, and sort of park all of our egos and, and get down to business more about the fact that Canadians want solutions, not politics when it comes to health, that maybe we can start implementing some of these changes and see some improvements. Yeah, hallelujah. That's been it's been tried before. It's uh, you know I remember the big healthcare conferences and so on of the past. Uh, you talked a bit about will uh, and whether or not it's there or not. Do you sense that it's there? Where, where do you see blockages or resistance to some of what you've been talking about? And and is it just acknowledgement that the problem is as bad as it is that it's politically sensitive? Where are you seeing the uh, the lack of will? I think the will is coming. I think the tides are turning. You know, I think naturally politicians are always inclined to want to tell everybody everything's okay, especially something controversial like healthcare, uh, where it's obviously an important issue to Canadians and they know that. And, uh, you know, sometimes admitting that there's a problem can be a bit of a death sentence, I think, as a politician. But I think it's getting harder and harder to deny this reality. And I think as more and more Canadians are truly not being able to access care, our politicians kind of have no choice but to take this on. So I think we're starting to move the needle on that. I think, you know, the risk, I think, for this is because it is a large problem and it's complicated, um, there is the worry about do the politicians feel like it's something they can change in their mandate? And I think sometimes that can be a barrier as well because they think, hold on a minute here, this is complicated. If I put the energy into this, I'm not going to necessarily see the improvements while I'm still the one in power. Um, And that, I think, can sometimes be a barrier to wanting to take on some of these more complicated issues. But 
the reality, I think, now is we've just come to a point where we can no longer just carry on with what we've been doing because the consequences are in front of us. And I think that's why it's so important that we're talking about this. This is why we've been trying to bring this forward to Canadians because, you know, they need to know so that they can be advocating to their politicians for what they want to see. And they need to make it clear, all of us do, to our elected officials that this needs to be a priority because it's, you know, all of us are going to need the health care system at some point. I know. I mean, I was just thinking back to some recent election campaigns where it felt like healthcare wasn't really front and center, considering what a problem it's become or continues to be. I know it is surprising. You do wonder. You know, it's interesting because when you do polling, it, it's a top priority uh, for Canadians, but we don't always see that necessarily translate when it comes time to vote. And I think, you know, also concerning when you look at the recent election in Ontario, was just how low the voter turnout was, and it really, you know, makes me worried about are we as citizens engaging with our democracy and and really making sure that we come to our elected officials with what matters to us and then also hold them accountable because that's, you know, the world that we're in. And if we don't do our part as citizens, I think that puts us all at risk. Do you think we can can protect this public system the way it is without ever having to resort to any sort of privatized healthcare in this country? I mean, I know there's a little bit here and there, but that always seems to be where the debate goes eventually. Well, I certainly hope that we can. You know, I, I certainly do not believe that a two-tiered healthcare system is the solution here. I mean, the reality is we barely have enough resource to to operate one system. So if we start deploying the people we have into two parallel systems, I think there's a real worry that the quality of care would decline um, in, in the public system. And, and that's the worry. I also think that you know, Canadians have always been clear that universal access to health care is important to them. And I, I think it is part of our national identity. And I hope it remains so because it's a huge equity issue and it matters. But I think what we have to be careful of is that we don't let the system deteriorate to the point that it just seems that the only alternative is to do something totally different. We need to be investing in our health care system. We need to be making modernizing our health care system. We need to be acting on these things that we know are needed to get it back where it needs to be rather than assuming that something different would be better. Um, So again, this is, I think, why that political will is so important. And I think we just can't be complacent. Uh, You know, we, we have to realize that everything over time needs to change. And the healthcare system is unfortunately just something that has been left in the dark in a lot of ways. It has not kept up with, with some of the newer technologies and strategies and approaches to things. And we need to get on with that. Dr. Catherine Smart, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate you having me.